Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And greetings to the following fellow saloners, all of whom uh, either made a donation to the salon or made a donation for the audio edition of my novel, The Genesis Generation. And all of your donations will be going directly to uh, help offset some of this month's expenses uh, that are associated with these podcasts. And these wonderful souls are... Yori S., Gregory G., Raymond R., Sean M., David M., Penny R., Kevin P., and Michael W. Also, I want to thank the four Bitcoin donors, who, uh, by virtue of the way that the currency works, uh, must remain anonymous. And in particular, I want to thank the two Bitcoin donors who made rather large donations to the salon. As I've mentioned before, the majority of our donations usually range from $5 to $10. And so those two Bitcoin donations are quite significant. So a big thank you goes out to all of our donors for uh, helping us keep these podcasts coming your way. And I also want to uh, thank someone who I'll just have to call a secret Santa. You see, uh, a little while ago I received this package in the mail, and uh, in it was a PAX, P-A-X, Pax Vaporizer that is distributed by Plume, P-L-O-O-M dot com. Well, uh, I've now contacted uh, those of my friends whom I think might have sent it to me, but they all claim to have no knowledge of it. But since I have no financial connections to Plume, I feel that, uh, well, perhaps I should let you know a little something about this device, seeing as how the dope fiend isn't uh, podcasting his reviews of the latest vaporizer technology anymore. I'm not going to uh, make it a habit to review vaporizers, uh, but this one is so cool that, (laughs) well, I want to let you know about it. After visiting their website, I see that the price falls uh, somewhere in the middle range. It's uh, more expensive than a Magic Flight, which I also have and like quite well. And it's uh, less expensive than a Volcano, which I still think is tops. Uh, However, I've now burned out the switches on my Volcano and, uh, (laughs) well, I haven't used it in several years. I also have an Iolite, but that quit working several years ago also. So for the past two years, uh, my mainstay in the vaporizer world has been the Ariser Solo, which is truly a great piece of kit, as my Brit friends would say. And it's uh, worked flawlessly for uh, several years of heavy use, and uh, actually I didn't think that anything could top it. But this little Pax Vaporizer is now my favorite. Uh, Sure, there are a few things that if I was doing a real review, I'd point out as uh, potential downsides. But overall, this little thing is a true joy to use. You know, it's uh, small enough to fit in the palm of your hand and uh, has a retractable mouthpiece, which means that it uh, will easily slide into your pocket. And uh, for family gatherings, (laughs) where you have to sneak into the bathroom for a quick toke, well, uh, this vaporizer can't be beat. Uh, At least that's my opinion. The bottom line is that uh, the design is truly excellent, as uh, only an engineer can appreciate, I guess. Here's how I describe it. Uh, if you were a patient in sickbay on the Starship Enterprise, and the doctor prescribed medical marijuana for you, well, this is the delivery device that you'd find there. <laughs> it's really that slick. 
Of course, uh, since I'm more easily pleased than most people, uh, you may have a different opinion of this little gem. But whomever it was who sent this to me, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And uh, as soon as I finish recording this podcast, I'm going to spark that little baby up and uh, join you for a listen to the uh, Terrence McKenna Workshop segment that I'm about to play. Now, sometimes when I mention the date that a particular talk was given on, I fail to actually think about what the world was like at that time. And in just a moment or so, you're going to hear Terrence talk about a world population of 3.5 billion to 4 billion people. And uh, you can tell by his voice that the size of our global population at the time deeply concerned him. But today, uh, in a world of 7 billion people, about uh, double of what it was in May of 1990, if Terrence's numbers are correct, well, uh, today, if the world population was only 3.5 to 4 billion people, well, it sounds quite manageable. Uh, that doubling in such a short time span gives you uh, something to think about, doesn't it? So uh, let's join Terrence now to uh, hear what he has to say about this, uh, as well as a host of other issues that seem to freely pop into his mind, and uh, then from his mind into our minds as well. Well, I'll just say a little bit about uh, myself and how I relate to this. I don't really like to talk about it in those terms, but since this is the getting to know each other thing, it's very important to the to what I understand that um, everybody else understand that there's nothing special about it or me in other words for for what I'm trying to do to make sense this access to this transcendental realm has to be democratically available. It can't depend on your spiritual accomplishment or your mastery of a technique or something like that. It isn't like that. It's something that is as uh, much a part of us as ordinary people as our sexuality is. And sexuality is not something that is dispensed by gurus. It's just something you figure out and do, you know. And this is much more along those lines. My, how I explain to myself what I'm doing in this position is that I was just simply incredibly lucky, incredibly fortunate to be at certain places, at certain times, when they were handing out the good stuff. <laughs> and um, so it, it's a... And then I sort of... I see you in the same way. Someone over here, Fred, said he was looking for the, the answer to the mystery of life. Well, the weird thing about taking that position is that you can fall into positions where you find it, where you find the answer. And I sort of feel like that's the situation that the deep plant psychedelic community is in. It's a sense of having found the answer, and now the task changes. It's a completely different kind of spiritual universe that you live in after you've found the answer because the task becomes facing the answer 
facing it. You now have it. It's no more about disciplining the passions and, and all the... No, no. It's now been handed over. And so what are you going to do with it? And this, this is, uh, to my mind, in a way, uh, the, the problem and the challenge that we face globally as a species. You know, if the Holy Grail of the Western mind was the ability to release energy and form matter and to control nature, then this is now achieved. The goal... So now the whole context of the problem changes. And the problem becomes changing our own minds, controlling the hand that controls the energy. And this is an entirely different kind of problem. It is not to be solved with the analytical knife plunged again and again into the body of nature. That whole approach is uh, seen to be uh, at best passé, at worst bankrupt. So instead, it's about trying to edge up close to nature and feeling as individuals and as a society very peculiar about this. You know, it's like going back to your rape victim and pleading for their forgiveness. And yet, as I've tried to make sense of these psychedelic experiences, first in a general way, saying, you know, what are these molecules for? Or is that a proper question to ask? What are they doing for the plant? What are they doing for me? Uh as I've tried to come to terms with what this might all be about, I've come more and more back to the notion that uh, it all lies in the plants, that our peculiar restlessness, which in modern circumstances has evolved into a rapacious appetite for addictive substances of all sorts. Our peculiar um, inappropriateness in all contexts, so we are not quite simply complex mammals, we are certainly not angels, and we just seem to occupy a very uncomfortable place in the hierarchy of, of uh, creation. I think this has to do with the fact that we are uh, the, the traumatized inheritors of a dysfunctional relationship, a relationship that grew dysfunctional uh, in the last 15 to 25,000 years. And what we call history is the fall out of a dynamic, here-and-now, feeling-toned relationship with our environment and into, you know, this anticipation of the future, worry of the, about the past, uh, basically ego. And I, I recently spoke in New York, and New York is a very uh, nuts-and-bolts kind of town, and uh, people there took issue with the notion that all of our problems can be boiled down to a single problem. If you trace the, the thread of every screw-up back into the maze, it all comes back to a single 
issue, which is excess of ego. We all have excess of ego, and uh, our entire situation, legalistic, psychological, religious, everything is about this, that it, it doesn't work, it's maladaptive, and yet we have it. And uh, why do we have it? If it's maladaptive, if it doesn't promote human values, then how in the hell did it get started and what is it that's maintaining and sustaining it? Well, this is what I want to talk about uh, over the course of the weekend. Uh, when I pushed the analysis of what the psychedelic experience meant to the limits, I was surprised to discover that it left the domain of my personal relationship to the mystery. You know, what is it? What does it want for me? What is it trying to say? It, all that had to also make room for uh, another issue, which is there's a political issue here. I think most people in this room, most people who have had the psychedelic experience will agree that the most profound, the most open-hearted, the most moving moments of their lives, some of them have been tied in with those experiences. But we seem unable or unwilling or afraid to extrapolate that conclusion to the notion that this is a general panacea for society because we cannot conceive that our... Uh, that the, the solution to a spiritual dilemma could lie in matter. In other words, we ourselves have been effect, infected by the inside-outside matter-spirit dichotomies of the, of the dominator culture. But the notion that man, notice the gender thrust here, the notion that man could somehow bootstrap himself to Godhead without reference to nature seems to me highly peculiar and, and simply nothing more than an expression of hubris, pride, a belief, you know, that we can do it our way and alone. So, all of this is, is very... Uh, the shelf life is short on all of these issues because the planet is in a state of terminal crisis. Does that have anything to do with the psychedelic experience or are these separate issues? How can they be separate issues if the psychedelic experience is a mirror of the state of the individual and, and collective psyche and if the planet is uh, on a collision course with some kind of terminal crisis. It seems to me, then, that what, you know, nature is struggling to right this disequilibrated planetary ecosystem. So, in a sense... There is nothing to be done except to watch and wait. But on the other hand, 
We are not apart from nature. We are, in some sense, the, a, a portion of nature which is the most reactive and energetic because we are reactive and energetic in the domain of epigenetic codes. We can foment rapid change. Until recently, it was a, it, it was a truism of thinking about society that all change had to be gradual. This myth has now been exploded. We know that, you know, you just take them all out and hang them, and then that's not gradual, and then you've got a new world. And this has been done in several places with uh, excellent success recently. So change need not be gradual. And in fact, I think we're entering into a historical domain where very little change will be gradual. Gradual change was a luxury of the past. Well, how to come to terms with these processes, patterns forming and reforming in our lives, in our relationships, in our families, in our businesses, in the extended relationships we have with people. It's, what is needed, you see, is a kind of collective breakthrough in apperception. I was thinking in the hot tub today, the, the most politically potent thing you can do for somebody is to educate them, to give them the facts. The facts are now so horrifying and the means of delivering the facts so effective that there is no excuse for everyone not beginning to act in an informed manner. And I, I think this is happening. Uh, for instance, a few months ago, I was in Belize, which is an extremely poor country, a little chip of land in the armpit of the Yucatan that used to be British Honduras. I didn't know there were countries this funky in the Western Hemisphere. I thought you had to go, you know. Uh, they have the fortune, good or ill, of speaking English as a national language. So when the British left, they just simply pointed dishes to the sky and they get 270 channels of American television. It has completely educated the entire population of the country into an extremely sophisticated strategy for surviving in the real world of the present moment. They understand that their only resource is their nature. So they have made the entire country into a, a nature reserve. They understand that, they, that tourism is their only hope and that for tourism to work, they must halt the destruction of their environment. This informing people at distant points of the value systems operating at the centers where values are being created, allows people to position themselves for success. I mean, a lot is being lost. You cannot pretend that the situation we're in is unambiguously rosy. It isn't. It's extremely complicated. Marxism dissolves 
What does this mean? It means that now uh, 21 language groups and 16 tribal uh, groups are open to exploitation, homogenization, leveling of cultural values. Everybody will be turned into a kind of white bread consuming citizen in a beige fascist world. And this is the alternative to Armageddon. We hail this as a great step forward. What is happening is that all restrictions are being done away with against the re expression of completely rapacious drives for immediate self-gratification. Until 18 months ago, only half the world had permission to behave like assholes. Now this permission is being extended to everyone as quickly as possible as a right, you know, your right to join in the looting of the planet. Well, certainly Stalinism is a bad thing, but is the only ideological counterpoise to that to be high-tech, mindless, consumer uh, fascism? I don't think so. In fact, I know not, because there isn't enough metal in the planet to put a Volvo in every driveway of three and a half billion or four billion people. So the search for a serious revolution in values is on. It cannot, it, it must come from the spiritual realm. And the spiritual realm in practical terms means the imagination. The, the, the frontier of our species is the imagination. Now we have to take that slogan and somehow turn it into a technology. How can we go to the place where ideas come from? How can we somehow separate our architectonic fantasies from the ongoing momentum of the planet? Both are valid, you see, but we have to recognize that what we are is almost an ontological transformation of life. We are to life what life is to the inorganic realm. And we need to separate ourselves from the planet. The planet, the entire planet, should be a bio-reserve. How many of these oxygen-rich, water-heavy worlds are there? Now, of course, it's pie in the sky to talk about moving all heavy industry into space or to the asteroid belt or something like that. But on the other hand, when you extrapolate a visionless future, even as much as three or four decades into the future, you see the accumulation of problems on such a scale that then there will be no pulling out of the power dive. Because once a society passes a certain point in the process of dissolution, it, you just don't make a decision to change. I mean, it's too late. You don't have the engineering skills. You don't have the technical community. You don't have the resource extraction ability. It's all slipped through your fingers. Well, I think uh, psychedelics are catalysts to thought to imagination, to understanding. And we are like somebody who has been dead drunk while the house was burning down around us. And now we have awakened to the sound of falling timbers and the smell of smoke. And we have a certain limited amount of time to figure this situation out. We don't have 
500 years or 100 years. Anybody who speaks in terms of solutions that require 100 years or even 50 years to implement doesn't understand the dynamics of the situation. History has some kind of will for its own transcendence. And I think we are now so close to the dropping of the mask and the realization of, of what the game was all along that the, the, the sense of this nearby revelation informs all of our lives. I mean, drives our dreams, our thoughts, the choices we make, why we're here in this room uh, this evening. It's very big news, I think. Uh, the world is not at all as we suppose it to be. I find that very amazing. I mean, that's the bottom line for me. I, I always think of these things in reference to that scene in 2001 when the anthropoid apes are leaping up and down and screaming and pointing at the monolith. That's what we're doing here in this room. I mean, the subject of this weekend is unspeakable. You know, it can only be obliquely indicated. Whatever you say about it is not true. Uh, and yet, it is somehow the informing mystery of being, and it is not remote. That's the big news. That uh, the previous human model, which is that we are all poor, groveling sinners, and that gnosis will trickle down to us from the wonderful folks up on top of the steep building nearby where they're conducting mysterious business with liver readings and stargazing, that model is uh, in, uh, insufficient and insulting considering the situation we have been brought to by those very stargazing men-wearing dresses. So I think what we have to do now is just take the machinery into our own hands. It's a matter of personal responsibility to find out what the world is really doing, what it is. What do you think's going on? What do you think this is all about? Who do you think you are? What do you think English is? Uh, how do you really cognize notions like uh, the future, the past, where I've been, what I want? I mean, you know, it's in Moby Dick, Melville says, if you would strike, strike through the mask. Everything is a mask. And just behind that mask lurks, well, what? That's the question. I mean, it's the, it's the thing which informs every individual existence, and that's fine, and people have always lived in the shadow of that mystery. But it is our weird privilege to live in an age where there is also to be a collective dropping of the mask, a moment of melting and recasting of what reality itself is to be. So, you know, discussing this, convincing ourselves of it, and then working out the minute details of how it all is inevitable and couldn't be any other way is uh, how we will occupy ourselves this weekend. I'm really conflicted in, in always in these situations because I feel, for some reason, I suppose it's an ego trip, that I want to be 
correctly perceived. I, as a person, want to be correctly perceived. And I think of myself as a reasonable person, a person sensitive to concepts like evidence, causality, uh, so forth and so on. And yet, what I have to say is like completely unreasonable. I mean, a, a messenger uh, bearing news of complete madness uh, approaching from all directions. So, and I got into that position by staying pretty close to the principle of, uh, of skepticism. I'm not a believer. In fact, when the, when, when the aliens draped the mantle over my shoulders, they said, it's because you don't believe in anything. You know, this is why you get, uh, that's why you got this far, because you didn't believe in anything. And uh, it's a good method. Normally, it's a method spawned out of futility. You'll say, well, fuck it, I don't believe in anything. But it's also very good for getting rid of a lot of crap because the real stuff can take the test of skepticism. The real stuff doesn't have to be bowed down before and, you know, it, it works, it's on its own. The, the news is, and it's very hard news to get out because it's news about the structure of reality, the news is coming back from, you know, 50, 60, 100 years of anthropologists, ethnographers, geographers, botanists, dealing with the most quote-unquote primitive people in the most remote parts of the world. The news is that reality is not at all as we imagined it to be and that our prowess in the technical sciences is simply a, a cultural artifact, an accomplishment of ours. Some people do great tattoos. We send spacecraft to the stars. But it doesn't mean we understand anymore. And in fact, the evidence is building that our style of society is the historical equivalent of a temper tantrum. You know, that it has no viability. It's completely self-limiting. It's destructive. And it hands nothing on to, to its receivers. So, uh, I sort of talk to this group, and all the groups that I talk to, from two points of view. I'm trying to convince you of something, and yet reason dictates that I assume that you're already convinced, pretty much. So then it's also an effort to figure out what it is we're so convinced of, and then what is so great about it. Because I think a, some kind of... A, this is a real mystery. The only one I know... This is the thing that you hope exists and assume doesn't if you're a reasonable person. Because it's that, you know, all the dreams of childhood, all the sense of magic and the, and the dissolvability and transcendability of boundaries is, uh, is returned 
is affirmed in this experience. Well, yet here we are having this on the brink of a planetary meltdown of culture and ecosystem. So is this just some kind of uh, dancing on the brink? Is the kind of ultimate self-indulgence? Does it feed back into the central moral problem of the age, which is, what is to be done? You know, what are we to do? How can we be effective, whatever that means? Is there a discernible role for each of us to play in the metamorphosis and near death of the planet that we are now experiencing? Or are we simply to witness it? Well, I don't think there's any point in thinking about these kinds of questions unless you draw back to the big picture, to first premises. To, uh, you know, a good example of what I mean is suppose we save the rainforests and stabilize the population and so forth and so on, and then 50 years down the line, uh, the sun explodes. It means we didn't get it. We were not reading correctly the message nature was trying to hand to us. And so we did the wrong thing and are going to be blown out of the water for such churlishness. So what's important is to figure out what is going on before you start pushing in the process. And uh, I don't think you can do it from within a culture. In other words, if you're a person of decent intent and moderate intelligence and you read the great minds of your culture and study their thought, it's insufficient because everybody is bound within an illusion of language. The entire enterprise of culture is this illusion of language. Homer was as sick with it as Heidegger. So there's no going back or getting, you know, no classic recension. What we have to do is reach past to some kind of experience. It must be anchored in an experience. But there is this thing about being human, which we as a culture have ignored, repressed, don't want to talk about, face, or think about, which is you can get loaded. And nobody knows quite what to make of this. We dance around it with the same kind of furious, ambiguous intensity that we also reserve for sex, which is also a, a boundary-dissolving, momentary uh, loss of self into some kind of greater whole. And it also just drives us into a frenzy. I mean, we establish boundaries, we have hierarchies, we push it this way and that. It just, just drives us up the wall. You know, whoever she was who designed this system had the good sense to connect this whole sexual impulse very tightly into the generative process so that there's no way you can get sex out of the human experience. I mean, people have tried in all times and places in many strange ways. 150 years ago, they were putting pants on pianos. 
because it was thought that young men should not see pianos unclothed because it might excite them to impure thoughts. And this is real in England, in our culture, not New Guinea or the moon, but in England, pants wore, uh, pianos wore pants. But uh, the, the psychedelic option is sort of like an appendix, you know, you can have it, but you don't need it, apparently. Apparently, that's the key thing. In other words, whether or not you have the psychedelic experience does not stand between you and the ability to pass on your genes into time. It does not stand between you and continued existence, like the reflex, the autonomic reflex of breathing. It's a kind of... of uh, potential loop in development which we can as culturally coordinated creatures choose to follow or choose not to follow but this development is very recent until pick a number 10,000 years ago the onset of puberty which was, you know, the, uh, a wave of hormonal release, basically, the onset of puberty was the signal to the social mechanisms of the people to begin the administration of psychedelic plants, to carry people into adulthood, to carry them into a feeling-toned relationship with the mythological material that they had learned as children, but that they now would be expected to exemplify as realized adults within the lung or culture or whatever it is that they are. We, in our anxiety about all this, and I'll talk about why I'm sure it will come out, but for the present just to say, we have interfered with this and we have enforced upon ourselves a kind of infantilism. Now, this is a phenomenon that's well known. It's called neoteny. Neoteny is the preservation of adult characteristics into adulthood. Into adulthood. Childhood characteristics. Childhood characteristics, or infantile characteristics, or fe even fetal characteristics. So, for instance, all, all primate fetuses are hairless. But only the human being retains this fetal characteristic throughout life. The very large head of the human infant, the, the uh, percentage relationship to body mass remains uh, very much in the fetal end of the statistics throughout life for human beings. We have large heads. The very prolonged... Uh, period in which skills, cultural skills are acquired, up to 16 years. Well, this tendency toward biological uh, neoteny, uh, which was reinforced by uh, mutagenic influences in the diet, is carried over into culture as a cultural characteristic. And it's, have you noticed that every generation views the generation it spawns as more childish than itself. 
And we look back to our rugged grandparents who slogged across the plains, and I suppose they look back to people in chain mail who were only four feet high, who, you know, could go without eating for six months or something. And it, it just gets... We become more and more soft, more and more infantile. And the final phase of this was just the decision that we never needed to grow up at all. We never needed to find out about the nature of our relationship to being at all. And so the psychedelics were suppressed. And what you have in the pre-adolescent child what in, uh, is an extreme expression of ego. And this is, you know, the 11-year-old child, let's take as the example, is the supreme egoist. And in a sense, we got hung up at that place because we, uh, we didn't get hung up in it. We fell into it. We were in balance. But the suppression of psychedelics created the precondition that allowed the generation of ego. And these are, it's very complicated. A lot of factors were at work, you see. Uh, the mushroom style, the shamanic style of the nomadic hunter-gatherer is a style of goddess worship and uh, psychedelic shamanism and orgiastic religion. And the shamanism and the religion o overlap each other considerably. The, the style that replaced that was a style of uh, domination, hierarchy, with alpha males, with powerful males controlling females at the center of these hierarchies. And to my mind, the, the sh concern that caused the shift was uh, the accumulation in the psyche of these hominids of enough ego that there became concern for the line of male paternity. In other words, men wanted to know who their children were. And that made the orgiastic style of religion in conflict because that was all about no, the children were the children of the group. And sex was a shared activity, even though there might be bonding. But once people got a men, once men got it into their heads that they wanted to know who their offspring were, then females had to be controlled very rigidly and there had to be control of sexual... And the whole thing just turned into a nightmare. My women, my property, my children, my food, my territory, so on and so forth. Well, you see, what had been going on before was a true incipient symbiosis. And this is, I think, the new idea that I want to communicate and that I'm absolutely, one, serious about and two, literal about, that the, our glory and our uniqueness and why we are as we are is because we are a plant-animal symbiotic species. Our ordinary state, our state of nature, the way in which we existed until 10,000 years ago, was in a very tightly bound symbiotic relationship with plants. 
they were uh, we domesticated them and we uh, spread them and and we created environments for them through the use of burning and in return for this this mysterious connection opened up where real information couched in humanly cognizable terms information about where the reindeer went who you should marry what the weather's going to do stuff like that real information began to be traded back and forth now biologists are familiar with the notion of pheromones message bearing chemicals that regulate behavior within a species but we're just getting ready to go to the next level and recognize the possibility of what have been called exopheromones pheromones that regulate behavior between species and it's very clear that you know in climaxed ecosystems of great age such as the equatorial tropics of this planet uh, exopheromonal interactions become the major mediating force in all the evolutionary exchanges going on the old notion of competition and survival of the fittest is now seen to be bankrupt the way nature works is it's the species that can make itself most necessary to other species the one that can cut energy deals with the most of its neighbors that is the successful one so you maximize cooperation you maximize dependency you maximize integration this is the successful evolutionary strategy i mean of course you can be a jaguar and crash around in the forest and eat things immediately smaller than you but um jaguars will be a memory in the fossil record of this planet when the plants will still exist given you know that man were not part of the picture so uh uh the dynamic of uh of life dictates that these uh, that these energy levels be held very close outside of the natural well no i think you know nothing is outside of the natural but all of this can be explained uh in terms of climatological flux on the african continent very briefly um you know the primates evolved in africa out of the primates came the hominids which were these gray seal upright uh, opposable thumb binocular vision and there were a number of these and they existed for you know over the past 6 million years but africa and the planet because of repeated glaciation is subject to cycles of drying and uh, every time the ice moved south primate populations were bottled up in africa and we know there've been four glaciations immediately the last one the ice melted 20,000 years ago and out of africa that last time came pastoralists people who had domesticated cattle and had a style of following cattle around rather than being just strictly hunter gatherers well i maintain what happened was uh, uh these arboreal tree canopy living apes came under pressure as the continent dried up to expand their diet because the forests were disappearing and being replaced by grassland 
Well, most animal species eat only one or two kinds of food. This is a general rule in nature, and it's in order to hold down exposure to mutagenic influence. But when an animal population is in a situation of food scarcity, the logical thing to do is to begin to test food sources and to expand your repertoire of food. Well, that's what these primates coming out of the trees did. Number one, they began eating meat which gave them a real interest that they had never had before in these ungulate mammals that were evolving in the grasslands. And they began to test all kinds of other foods in the environment. Well, when you do that, you are exposing your population to mutation. <clears throat> and mutation rates soar. And it was during this period that uh, the human brain size doubled in like a, a million and a half years, <clears throat> someone said it was the um, the most rapid evolutionary expansion of a major organ ever seen in the fossil record. Nothing like it ever happened. Why? What was making this happen? Well, uh, it looks like probably huge numbers of mutations were taking place in this population because people were literally eating anything they could get their hands on. And in this environment of the grasslands, the mushrooms were growing on the dung of these ungulate animals. Well, now a weird thing about psilocybin is that in very low doses, doses so low that you don't feel anything, uh, your vision improves. They've done tests with this. And, you know, there is an improvement in visual acuity uh, on psilocybin at low doses. Well, you can imagine the evolutionary impact of something like this on a hunting, gathering population where visual acuity is all that stands between you and grim starvation. It means a population of animals, a population of these hom evolving hominids that accept the mushroom into their diet have just been given a tremendous leg up on nearby competing troops, the competing troops that don't have it. It's like chemical binoculars. So immediately then there is a reason, an evolutionary reason, for mushrooms to be eaten and for the spread, for mushrooms to be accepted into the diet as an item and so forth and so on. Well, so then you take slightly more mushrooms... And like all alkaloids, and CN, it's a CNS arousal. It means you feel alert, you feel interested, you want a boogie. And also, uh, if, you're, if you're male, you can sustain an erection. So it, it, arousal means arousal. So then uh, this stuff is an enzyme promoting sexual activity at that level. Well, sexual activity, the, you know, the number of copulations that occur within a population is directly related to the number of successful impregnations. So suddenly you have these horny primates, be a lot of more interest in sexual contact and partners and all that. This means that these psilocybin-using creatures that are now more successful at hunting and more interested in sex have all kinds of pressures on them that will force them to outbreed the dull, uninteresting folks who don't use mushrooms at this point. <laughs> well, so then, uh, high, yet, yet higher doses 
it changes and it's no longer about sexual activity or clarity of vision. It becomes about the psychedelic trip, this tremendum, which is as awesome to you and me as it was to these so-called primitive folks 20,000 years ago. We don't know what to make of it. They, don't know, they didn't know what to make of it. They founded a religion about it. We're trying to start the engine of the same religion all over again. And uh, the way in which this religious ecstasis manifests itself is in language activity, in cognition, but in glossolalia in spontaneous outbursts of syntactically organized vocal activity. Well, the great mystery of human emergence, of course, is language. What is it? Where did it come from? How did it ever get going on such a scale? So forth and so on. But it looks to me like what we're seeing in psilocybin is a kind of neurological enzyme, a catalyst in the environment that could take an evolving primate population and put it through a series of forced changes that produce ultimately a self-reflected, minded uh, creature practicing a shamanic mother-goddess religion in this nomadic context. And that was paradise, and that was the ideal for the archaic revival. In other words, that Eden actually existed that we are made for better things than what we've got. You know, it says in Finnegan's Wake, here in Moikane, Moikane was the red light district of Dublin, here in Moikane we flop on the seamy side, but up Nayent, prospector, you sprout all your worth and woof your wings. That's a promise for the future. Up Nayent, you sprout all your worth and woof your wings. But also... Antes, we sprouted our worth and woofed our wings. And this whole nostalgia for a perfected shamanism in prehistory is reasonable, I think. I mean, I think we had something, an unimaginably precious gift. We had consciousness and dynamic order. Consciousness as we experience it now within the confines of history is most analogous to cancer. I mean, it's just, you know, replicating, spreading. But it once was a dynamic, ordered thing. People lived, they died, they made love, they had children, they herded their flocks, they had ecstatic flights into dimensions which we cannot even conceive of, and they felt no need, you know, to break into the earth, to divert the rivers, to do all of this stuff. And, and um, you know, e- even if we're not aesthetically attracted to that, we have to make a value judgment on it because it was not a runaway process. It did not push everything uh, toward crisis. Okay, well then, so what happened? What the hell happened if that's how it was? Well... You know, nature is just an ongoing story. The very drying processes that created those grasslands, that created those pressures on diet, that created that mother goddess religion, that evolved those ungulate animals, that process continued. And the grasslands dried up. And the winds began to blow. And the water holes got further and further apart from each other. And the mushroom festivals went from every Saturday night 
to the first uh, Saturday of every month, and then to four times a year, and then to once a year, and then to once every five years, and then to never. And in the absence of the psychedelic experience, this ego thing gets going. I mean, it is literally like a calcareous growth in the bloodstream of the psyche. If you don't inoculate yourself against it, it will begin to take root and grow. And, and the, world, the, the boundaries of the world begin to move inward, you know, and you no longer see things on a planetary scale or a millennial scale. Or it's just about, you know, my women, my money, my land, my children, all of this stuff. And at that point, you get um, the appearance of, of historical civilizations. You have kingship, kingship, you know, the age of Gilgamesh. I mean, my God, when you read the story of Gilgamesh, you just wonder what's going on. Uh, Gilgamesh spurned the goddess, and the goddess sent a bull, which to me is, you know, symbolic of the mystery of the mushroom, the ungulate herding horned animal, the crypto symbol for the god. The goddess sends a bull, and he, he uh, rejects the bull. He rejects the goddess, he rejects the bull. Then he takes Enkidu, the shaman figure, and forces him to go with him into the wilderness. And what do they do in the wilderness? This oldest of all myths, this story of the first men, what do they do? They cut down the tree of life. That's what they do. They cut down the tree of life. And then they, you know, it goes forward. The earliest strata of mythology that comes out of these Middle Eastern civilizations is full of this male-female nature artificial tension. The story of Genesis is a similar thing. I mean, what's happening in Genesis is history's first drug bust. Uh, a woman is involved with a plant and the plant uh, opens their eyes and they see that they are naked, which happens to be the case. They are naked. So in other words, they, they see, they grok their true existential condition. And Yahweh, wandering around mumbling to himself in the garden, says this thing that these people have done, what if they eat of the fruit of the tree of life? Then they will be as we are. So it's very clear that there is concern to withhold knowledge that hum human beings are to be held in an inferior position. Otherwise, if they were to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, of knowledge, they would be as we are. So there's this whole tension. And in the story in Genesis, you'll recall Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden and an angel is set at the east of Eden with a burning sword. Well, what I take this to be about is the... It's a story from a strata where already the shift to the dominator culture has taken place. But they're looking backward at the partnership society in on the grasslands of Africa. And the, and the angel with the burning sword is nothing more than the sun 
that they literally were cast out of Eden. Eden disappeared around them. It dried up and blew away. And there was nowhere to go but the Nile Valley and Palestine. And these people who appear in the Nile Valley and Palestine at about 9800 BC, called Natufayan, come out of nowhere with a very high culture and a tremendous ability to exploit plant resources. And I think they are the remnants of this partnership culture. And you see, our, our, the way in which all this ties into the present and tr- attempts to be more than just a, uh, you know, a kind of cultural reconstruction of prehistory is we're trying to understand who we are, why we are the way we are. Well, the major thing that now that we have transcended ideology and nobody gives a hoot whether you're a Marxist or any of that anymore because we've all seen through that. The, the new issue is human nature, and it evolves around this drug thing. You know, is it the true and purest expression of human nature that you should drink nothing but cold water and eat nothing but raw vegetables, and any departure from this is an abomination? And then when you get to drugs, you know, this is really an abomination. How, what should be our relationship to substances? And why are we the addictive creatures that we are? I mean, I know that elephants intoxicate on papayas and bumblebees get loaded on sugar water and this and that. But human beings addict to dozens of substances, to behaviors... I mean, all kinds of things. Guy goes out in the morning to pick up his paper off his porch, and it's not there. And he has a heart attack. You know, he has to sit down. He, my God, you know, what am I going to... And, and he has to have instant relief from the, the traumatic crisis of the non-presence of uh, the morning information fix. And, and the phenomenon of falling in love, which doesn't really happen with other animals. I mean, other animals bond, but they don't go bananas in the way that we do on, on this issue. Uh, we're, we're chemically highly cued in a way that a lot of animals around us aren't. So then history, because of this, because of this addictive drive within us, that we have because of this disrupted symbiotic relationship in prehistory, See, we're looking for the score, but we can't quite find it. Imperialism doesn't do it. Heroin doesn't do it. Sadomasochism doesn't do it. Nothing quite does it. But we keep trying stuff. Cocaine, money, fascism, mercantilism, ideology, all of this stuff. We are very, very restless. And the path of our restless, frantic peregrinations across the intellectual landscape is what we call history. You know, it's our effort to try and get straight, get back to something which we feel we deserve and that we lost and that we don't know quite what it was. Well, meanwhile... In the rainforests, in the Arctic tundra, these little brown people have been keeping the gnosis going, never questioning, never doubting, millennia after millennia, going into these hyperdimensional mind spaces and operating there. 
while this has been going on, we have been elaborating positivism, scientific philosophy, building atom smashers, so forth and so on. We have created, then, out of our infantile cultural style, uh, what Eric Fromm would call a fecal cultural, st cultural style, because we just excrete stuff, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, they have held this mystery. But they, to my mind, the mistake that has been made is that it's been thought that they understood it, that we now go to the shamans and they will explain to us what the inner skinny is on all this. That isn't it. There's no explaining this. Once you've been there, you know the futility of a notion like understanding the psychedelic experience. It's like understanding the ocean or understanding a planetary ecology. We think that things are to be understood, but some things are simply to be, you know, what's the word, appreciated, imbibed, to be in the darshan of them. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit more as we were this morning. I talked more than I intended to this morning. Uh, <laughs> what is anybody's take on this? Or did anybody not get their licks in this morning? Yeah. Um, you mentioned the odd and the strange and the weird. Um, um, other than hallucinogens, you know, how can we fool this brain away from the ego? It's pretty, pretty difficult. Yeah. I think that's why we're in the situation we're in. Um, Talking about things we could do every day, not once a month. Well, there's no substitute for awareness in any situation. I mean, part of, part of the work, I think, is the spectacular episodes of intoxication that break down the boundaries of our personality and reorient us and recast it. But then the other thing is just living that out from day to day. And there's no substitute for hard work. I mean, people say, how can psychedelics be real? You're saying it's some kind of shortcut to spiritual wisdom. Well, it may be a shortcut, but nobody said it's easy. Uh, it isn't easy. No. Uh, it's, it just is that it's ultimately effective. I don't know, I'm, I find myself preaching a doctrine that is hardly welcome in the touchy-feely uh, circles that I'm usually teaching in, which is stifle it. Now, there's a doctrine to take home from the New Age. Stifle it, you know. The ego is much too large. I mean, we need an ego, yes. That's so that if you take somebody to dinner, you know whose mouth to put food in. That's having an ego. But above and beyond that, it becomes uh, uh, sort of superfluous. It's a, it's a habit, um, it's a bad habit. It's an infantile response that has been culturally supported to the point where it's become uh, uh, institutionalized. Do you believe a person needs a strong enough ego before they can transcend or transform it, though? The reason I'm saying that is because I've seen a lot of teenagers in the city, and then they experiment a lot with drugs, and especially with psychedelics. And sometimes I wonder if they're really getting anything out of that early experimentation. I didn't 
get into psychedelics until my late 20s. So I... Well, see, it's a real complicated question. Uh, civilizations evolve folkways to deal with the drugs that they're interested in, and this takes hundreds, thousands of years. Part of the question I hear you asking is, you say that these drugs dissolve the ego, but aren't some people in a weakened ego condition when they come upon them? And I think probably you're right. It's not clear that the onset of puberty, when there's a good deal of psychosexual and endocrine confusion going on anyway, is the precise right moment that you want to drop these psychedelics on somebody, although this is done in many traditional societies. But the, the problem is that in societies where there is shamanism, there's an understood way to do it. There's an understood way to initiate somebody. Kids growing up on the streets, taking drugs of all sorts in doses of all sorts, it's very hard to sort it out. You know, I mean, people don't have intent they don't have focus, they don't have information, they're just, everything is so fragmented in modern life. Part of what all this yammering about shamanism might eventually lead to is the reformation of psychotherapy along the lines of, of a shamanic uh, style so that then... Uh, you know, people people could have these voyages, could have the insight into their problems that you get from psychedelics. Also, in um, those cultures and societies where they do use the psychotropic drug at, at puberty, um, I think those societies support the the individual, the child growing up in very positive ways and feed their ego in a very constructive positive way so that they are not filled with a lot of self-consciousness and self-hatred and lack of self-worth and so forth, a lot of the critical nature that I think um, and the lack of nurturing and attention that a lot of the adolescents grow up in our society with that then get weak egos from adolescence on into adulthood and I think the developmental um, quality of life in <coughs> different cultures has some, a lot to do with one's um, ability to utilize the, the drug, the plants, effectively. Cooperation is just an automatic response among many of these rainforest hunting, gathering people. I mean, when you finish a job, it isn't your job. When you finish a job, you go on and you do another job until all the jobs are done. And, and this is clearly a learned response because these are human beings just like us. But under the extreme pressure of being, you know, 20 people trying to hold it together in the rainforest through gathering, they, they have accepted that the tribal unit is the lowest common denominator and that everything has to operate. To, in the light of that. Back here. Um, uh, I felt that part of what was being discussed here was the difference between discursive and one-pointed meditation. 
And uh, discursive meditation is like meditating on you know, the stations of the cross if you're Catholic, or the seven sheaves of the self if you're a Hindu. And it, it sort of serves years of doing that as a, establishing a ladder that can take you to the transcendent. And that uh, one point of meditation, and even more profoundly, the use of psychedelics can suddenly put you into a transcendent state. And whether you'll have the capacity to get back is the question. And um, so that there might be a role for uh, uh, a period of discursive meditation or uh, an education along that way before something that instantly propelled you into uh, an experience of the transcendent. Um, yes, although um, this, this difficulty getting back is an interesting thing to talk about because I certainly know what you mean. I think everybody who takes psychedelics a lot eventually has a trip that stands their hair on end. And, and the, the, the reasonable fear I've always felt about psychedelics was not that it would kill you. That's not reasonable. Uh, but, but the somewhat murkier question, could it drive you mad? is a little harder to just, of course not, because, hell, why not? I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely rubbing up against those areas. But I have real faith that it is, uh, it's, like getting, it's like flipping a coin and getting it to land on its edge. The psychedelic experience is, it such, represents such a state of disequilibrium that in almost all cases the entire system is striving to return to normal and will do so very quickly. I, you know, my life is built around one spectacular exception where um, my brother took a bunch of things and had a theory and proceeded to sail off for the better part of three weeks. And, and this sort of brings up another issue. You know, we sit here relatively down and calm and, and uh, we can talk about the LD50 of psilocybin. That's how much you would have to give to 100 mice for 50 of them to die. This is what pharmacologists are all about. But when you're actually stoned in these places, you realize or you have the uh, apparent realization that of course the mind is in control and talking about safety you're only as safe as you think you are literally and if for a moment you decide you're not safe these, the, the state is very fragile it's skittery you know get it going too fast in one direction and it will be very hard to run around and get in front of it and get it halted and moving off in some other direction is that what you meant by self-toxicity? Did I use that phrase well, this morning? No, in, in a past uh, tape you, you did mention about oh, self-toxicity self -toxicity and negative effects, possible negative effects. Well, yeah, I think this is what people fear, that they are self-toxic. And we have all been disempowered. To some degree we are self-toxic. That's a real tragedy. It means we have been made our own enemies. And then, whether we are or not, we all fear self-toxicity. This is why in the 60s, when LSD first began to appear, people had such violent reactions to it. You know, Tim Leary said, 
LSD is a psychedelic drug which causes psychotic behavior in people who haven't taken it. (laughs) This is absolutely true. Well, why would a drug that you don't take cause you to become psychotic? It's because the mere fact of its existence is so threatening to you because you know that you're self-toxic. That's what I always felt in the 60s. These people all know they're crazy and they don't want to get near anything which would perturb their psychic dynamics. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're certifiably insane and they don't want to hear about it. So they're not going to be delving into something which shines a Klieg light on the mechanics of the psyche. It's the last thing that they are uh, interested in. Um, if the uh, if the definition of ego is the sort of reality uh, testing mode of the psyche, the psyche's ability to perceive reality, then it almost seems that uh, the psychedelic experience augments the ego to a new level rather than extinguishes the ego. That it gives uh, a truer picture of, of reality. Well, you know, Freud uh, had this concept that he called the superego. And this term has somewhat fallen out of use and because we all tend to be a little more Jungian than that and, and we talk about the collective unconscious. But in a way, I, though I'm more sympathetic to Jung, I like the phrase superego because the phrase collective unconscious is a kind of blah Concept. It's like a data bank, a repository, where superego seems to imply organization, intelligence, focus, awareness. And uh, what seems to emerge from these psychedelic experiences is that where we expected disorder or the absence of organization, we find order and we find mindedness. The superego seems to be uh, everywhere. So in a way, it it is like that. It is that you're becoming more informed, but it diminishes your personal importance, the physical atom of your body, you know? I mean, we believe, and it may be true, but the question is, how important is it, that we are each unique, and that somehow in this uniqueness, is our worth. And that if something were to happen to you, we can't replace you with me, and I can't, you can't stand in for me. But, uh, you know, back off to where you're looking at a scale of a thousand years of this stuff, and you see that each one of us actually is expendable. And that the general processes in which we are embedded are so large that it probably doesn't matter who you are. And I could have been you, and you could have been me. Well then, once you've got that nailed down, uh, being becomes a whole different project. Being is something out there that you do. You garden well, you bear and raise children, you feed people, you build objects, you know. it, It becomes something outside of yourself rather than something interiorized. And I think, you know, thousands and thousands of generations of people were born and lived and went into the ground with this kind of a psychology. And 
we are all imprisoned by our cultural expectations to such a degree that the real problem is to, is to make ourselves realize how blind we are, how much what we've been taught, the words we use, the expectations we have uh, uh, hem us in. And the psychedelics show that cultural relativism not as an exercise, not as something that you're convinced of by rational argument, but that you just, uh, you just see it immediately. See, I think that we are very malleable creatures and have held many positions in the last 10,000 years vis-a-vis -vis these structures which we call the ego, the superego, the, the self, the unconscious. It's more fluid than we imagine. Uh, language may have emerged only 40,000 years ago. Well, imagine that. Language is the software without which we wouldn't be people. You know? I mean, language allows us to explore realms of subtlety and inclusive understanding that so exceed the, the animal grasp that it can, they can barely be compared. Uh, I think probably in the beginning that language was something that women held almost as a magical power. The reason for this is that there was greater selection, uh, selective pressure on women than on men to develop language because the, the physically larger male when there began to be role specialization, the physically larger male was made a hunter. And hunting places a premium on such values as stoicism, patience, and an ability to keep your mouth shut. The women were involved in gathering. And, and because the children were physically with the women, this area in which the gathering went on was more tightly related to the living space. Well, if you know anything about the science of botany, you know that it is a science of the coordination of detail. Everything is about the detail. Here you have 50 species of grasses. To Joe Blow, they all look exactly the same. To a specialist in the Graminae, here is a whole rich universe of taxonomic diversity to be combed over and milked for years as you advance through the academic machinery. <clears throat> so, uh, women had to learn all these differentiations. Women had to be able to make statements like, it's the small bush at the bottom of the draw with the wrinkled leaves and the sticky white berries with the silver hairs on them. See, it's all color, shape, form, and relationship words. Well, this kind of language is the kind of language that gave us a leg up on animal organization. After a passage of time, I think this linguistic thing generally established itself. But it, it was uh, originally a, a, a thing that women were into. It's even to this day, when you go into villages in third world parts of the planet, uh, there's this phrase in all travel books, which is the chattering of the village women. And it's true, they really do chatter. 
and it's because they are more collective creatures. The male is this proud, lonely, hunting figure, and the females represent, you know, the village values. And they held the knowledge of the plants. They discovered all this stuff. You even get that in the Eden story. It's a woman who's blamed. Somehow these women have a deeper insight, and the poor guy is just led to slaughter because he's <laughs> trying to get some chow. <laughs> Perhaps an appropriate image uh, would be uh, one of uh, climbing a temple. I can always think of Borobudur, which is probably the most impressive temple that I've ever visited. But um, there, as you walk up the temple, if you pay attention, you hear having a whole experience of Buddhism and different symbologies, but also just basically your vision of the surrounding jungle expands and your sense of self uh, diminishes. Because you see the larger yeah, world. You see the larger world from up on top. Yeah, from the center of the mandala. Yeah. The same psychology is operating on the Mayan buildings. I mean, the Mayan buildings are barely buildings at all. They're more like pedestals. I mean, this thing is, you know, 230 feet high, but when you climb to the top of it, there's room for 12 guys to stand shoulder to shoulder. And that's the building. And it's clearly, entirely, to elevate them above the social space. It was literally a machine for lifting the priesthood into another dimension. And the dimension into which it lifted them was an aerial dimension. They could see then the whole world. They could see the sock bays stretching out to the next pyramid. They could see the next pyramid five or ten miles away on the horizon and could see the life of the city and all this. You know, there's a funny thing. Um, it's almost as though biology and then its ancillary tack-on phenomenon culture is a kind of conquest of dimensions that has been going on for a very long time. And this aids me, anyway, in understanding the transformation that I think lies ahead for this planet. The earliest forms of life had only a tactile sense. That means all they knew was what they were bumping up against. And they would move around and what was edible was eaten and what wasn't, wasn't. And then over a long time passed, you know, 100 million, 200 million years, and certain specialized cells... Uh, 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 aggregated and these cells were light sensitive cells they could send an on off signal uh, based on whether or not photons were falling on them so eye spots developed and eye spots are just these sensors which tell you if it's light or dark and suddenly these creatures could move off after a light source or could retreat from danger into a dark spot well then uh, Eventually, these eye spots evolved into the kinds of very finely coordinated optical systems that we have and octopi have and so forth. At the same time, motility was developing, the ability to move through space. Well, have you ever noticed that when you look at something and at a place a few feet from where you're sitting, 
and then go there, physically move there, that what you have really done is you have coordinated a, a short trip into the future because you have looked at a spot and you have said, this is how the brain computer works, it has said, I am not in that place. I want to be in that place. I am in this place now. To get from this place now to that place then, I have to move through the following points. And, and when animals began to move, uh, another dimension was added to their repertoire of control. And when they began to coordinate vision, another dimension was added to their repertoire of control. Well, we made then a great and fundamental break in our neurological organization. All animal life, as far as we can tell, is imprisoned between very steep temporal canyons having to do with the present moment. Animals are in the present moment in, in a way that would be very frightening to us, I think. If you could suddenly enter the mind of an animal, the Im immediate thing that you would notice that would really unnerve you was the absence of a past and a future. That just, you know, you talk about be there now, an animal has that down pat. Well, when we, uh, through language, that was the great... Language is a strategy for binding time. Language is a strategy for taking the animal mind locked in the present moment and pushing it back conceivably to the creation of the universe as we do and forward conceivably to the end of the universe. So, so culture is a strategy for intensifying the dimensionality of an animal species. And uh, the... the uh, when, when you then get into what's called epigenetic coding, not simply being able to recall the past neurologically and project the future neurologically, but to actually write down the past and calculate the future, well then, what is happening is mind is spreading out through the dimensions available to it. And this whole cultural intensification that we call the 20th century, the spinning down and interconnecting of technologies and, uh, and uh, animal ecosystems and philosophical systems, all this knitting together is a, a going hyperdimensional of our species that yet more of the future and more of the past is apparently to be realized. And if you know anything about virtual reality uh, thinking, there, time is to be homogenized completely. I mean, you will not be able to tell whether it's next week or last week because they will be uh, approximately equally accessible. And uh, somehow, the psychedelic experience is related to this bootstrapping process of climbing organizationally from one dimension to another, deeper and deeper into complexity. It's almost as though the psychedelic experience is 
a viewing of the process from the highest dimension in the plane. One way of putting this that isn't so mathematical is to say what you experience in the psychedelic experience is eternity. All of time. You leave the slowly revolving torus of time just as one would leave the galaxy in a spaceship and you go outside and then you look back and you see all of time. You see the beginning of life, the end of life, the fiery death of this planet, millennia hence, whatever it is. Uh, and, and I think that this is a true vision, that this is what shamans have achieved, this is what we, with all our sophistication, are confounded by. A shaman is someone who has seen the end. A shaman is somebody who has seen it all. They've run the movie and run the movie and run the movie and they've satisfied themselves that they understand the movie. Then they go back to their place in the movie and they live it with a small smile because they know the end. They know how things work. They know what life is. And when you have even a piece of that action, you can get a real handle on peace of mind, on true authenticity, because it's in the tumbling, forward-rushing chaos of the lower-dimensional slices of time that we lose it, that we become confused. Who am I? What do I want? Where am I? Who should I be with? What should I give myself to? This is, the, this is a voice speaking from chaos. I remember once at a period of turmoil in my life, I, I took mushrooms to try and resolve my personal difficulties. And I, and I said, I'll think of a question. You know, they say you should think of a question. So I said, I'll think of a question. The question was, am I doing the right thing? And it's in the point in the trip, I posed this question to it. And the answer was, what kind of a chicken shit question is that? <laughs> to ask an extraterrestrial intellecty. Well, so then I got it, you know, that that was a chicken shit question and that I had been completely misunderstanding the nature of the relationship. This wasn't some kind of little glass ball that gives yes or no when you turn it upside down. This is... Uh, I don't know, words fail, but nobody to expect psychotherapy for free from anyway. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, uh, do you think that Terence was right about the psychedelic experience being an experience of eternity? Of course, uh, it all depends upon your definition of eternity, I guess. Interestingly, uh, most common definitions of eternity seem to include the concept of timelessness on one hand and infinite time as another definition. So, uh, what is it? What does eternity mean to you? Does it mean existing without any notion of time? Or uh, does it mean stepping out of time but being able to see what Terence calls all of time? And, uh, of course, then the difficulty increases when we ask uh, what is meant by all of time. 
Is that only human time, or is it all time that uh, this physical universe appears to have included? Basically, uh, while I first liked and agreed with the thought that a psychedelic experience is an experience of eternity, well, for me, the bottom line is that uh, I don't really know what that actually means. As Spock said, it uh, sounds good, Captain, but it isn't logical. (laughs) However, uh, please keep in mind that this is only my own opinion. Uh, For you, it may be much more clear. All that I'm trying to point out here is that, uh, ultimately, we are still kind of groping in the dark when it comes to trying to explain a psychedelic experience to someone who has never had one. Also, uh, I hope that the purists among us are pleased that I didn't cut a thing out of this talk even though uh, he told the ape and the mushroom story again. For some reason, I just really enjoyed this particular telling of it. Uh, I guess the context in which he told the story this time worked better than uh, some past tellings of that wonderful tale. Well, uh, I think that we've probably done enough deep thinking for one day. Now let's uh, kick back and uh, maybe put on some of our favorite music, uh, maybe have a toke or two, And let's spend a few moments thinking about how absolutely incredible it is that we now find ourselves stuck in these animal bodies here on this uh, beautiful little planet that we call Earth. No matter where you find yourself at this moment, uh, I'm sure that if you look hard enough, you can find at least one thing right now that makes your life worth living. So uh, let it bring a smile to your face, and then share that smile with the first stranger that you meet. It may not be much, but that little smile of yours may just be the best thing that happened to that stranger all day. And it may be the most important thing that you do today. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends, and don't forget to smile. <laughs>